everyone. This is Charlie Levine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by Angler's Journal Magazine. If you're looking for a different fishing magazine that isn't just full of the same old, same old stuff that actually writes some in-depth stories about the people and places and boats and all the cool stuff that makes fishing great, check out anglersjournal.com and pick up a subscription. The Angler's Journal Podcast is brought to you by Atlantis Marine Finance. You know, Myself, I just unloaded my boat, and I am without a boat for the first time in like 15 years. And I'm already looking around. I got ideas. I think a few different things I want to purchase or, you know, future shopping as it is. But when it comes time to do it, I'm going to need to finance that boat. And Atlantis Marine Finance is a great option. They've got a lot of experience. They've got a team of industry pros, actual boat owners. They have the knowledge and resources to help you get on the water So if you're looking to purchase a new boat or a used boat or even a project boat, Atlantis Marine Finance will give you all the educational resources you need to make a good decision and help you down that path to your next boat purchase. For more information, visit AtlantisMarineFinance.com and good luck. Get out there and get that boat. All right. Well, today's kind of a little different. We're actually down here in Jupiter, Florida. We got invited down by Costa Sunglasses to attend an event they call Costa Days. And they've got an awesome group of people here, some dealers, some brand ambassadors, anglers, and a lot of really cool causes, one of which is Captains for Clean Water. And I'm sitting down with Mr. Chris Whitman, one of the founders, and um, got to share a boat ride with you today, too, and do some fishing. How's it going, Chris? Great, Charlie. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Oh, man, I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything you guys have done and are doing. And, you know, it was kind of interesting today. We were fishing out of Stewart and coming back through the inlet. You know, Cody was pointing out some of those spots where some of these outflows are messing things up, and it was really eye-opening because it was right there in front of us. Yeah. You know, I think that's um, that point is something that makes uh, – Everglades restoration so important or or shows why Everglades restoration is so important. It's real easy for us to look at issues that are in our backyard um, through like a very narrow lens of this is, this is my backyard and seeking a solution to, to solely something that you see right there. But the reality is the same um, problems and water management that affects those flats that Cody was showing you here are the exact same problems that affect my estuary in Fort Myers on the West Coast and the exact same problems that affect Florida Bay and the Everglades to our South. And so in looking at solutions to those problems, it's important for us to look at solutions that benefit all of all of three of those estuaries. And, and that's really where Everglades restoration comes in. Yeah. And it's nice to have a little bit of good news, right? And you guys do have some good news, a big win recently. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, just recently um, we had the groundbreaking for the EAA Reservoir. Um, that is, it's kind of the heart of Everglades Restoration. It's like the cornerstone project of all that. And um, so Everglades Restoration, for those who don't know, is the largest restoration project ever to be undertaken in the world. And... It consists of 68 infrastructure projects, like the reservoir, um, that are intended to take and reconnect the the conveyance of water from Lake Okeechobee south to, ultimately, to Florida Bay and the Everglades. Um, 
cleaning that water before it is sent south and reducing those discharges to the east and west coast. And so um, within Everglades Restoration is kind of the center um, key project is the EAA Reservoir. And that that is a reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee that will take the lake's, you know, polluted waters and store them, take that water in during the wet season, store it, and clean it through a man-made filter marsh, um, and then be able to meter that water out south to the Everglades in the dry season where it's desperately needed. Um, That, when we started Captains for Clean Water, um, you know, it was 16 years into Everglades restoration, halfway through what was the estimated timeline of this suite of projects. Um, And that one project was, was probably the most politically challenging and when we first started, honestly, we were told a number of times that, that that project would never happen because of that. And so to see That's seven amazing. years later that that, that project is, is actually under construction, is, it's an amazing It is. Thing. And you guys are not politicians. You know, I don't really know your background. It'd just be a good time, I guess, to ask you. But to me, you guys are fishing captains. You saw a problem. You didn't stop. You just kept working at it, kept working at it, kept growing. And, and it's, it's working, it's making a difference. Um, you know, you mentioned a letter when we were out fishing that was signed by obviously both parties, Republicans and Democrats. And, and this is obviously an issue that everyone can get behind. So yeah, it's just tenacity, I guess is what it takes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're, we're fishing guides by trade and I I think you have to be, uh, somewhat stubborn, um, and set in your ways to, to, you know, be good at that profession but uh, you know Everglades restoration water quality uh, is something that it affects everyone it, it doesn't matter what political party you may you know more closely align with it doesn't matter your economic status it doesn't really it, none of those things matter clean water matters. Um, it matters to to everybody whether it is for your way of life your lifestyle whether it is for your the economy in your job, like myself as a fishing guide, or, or whether it's quite literally for your drinking water. And so um, it's, it goes to show that even in today's day and age when there is, you know, great divide on our country on, on numerous, numerous topics, Everglades restoration is something that we see bipartisan support for um, both at the state and the federal level. And uh, that just that just goes to show it, that how important it really is. It's, it's such a unique place. You know, I, I live in Florida now for about 20 years and try to get down there at least once a year. And whether it's camping and fishing, I mean, like the ride out to fishing is almost the best part. You know, just whipping through the mangroves and all the different wildlife you see. And it has to be fixed and it's kind of a classic David versus Goliath fight as far as you know what I can see because there's you know big sugar and lots of money against all this and I just really admire how you guys have done it the right way because it's easy to get mad and and you know I don't know go down a dirty road but you guys are working within the system and you've done such a good job getting people together yeah you know a lot of a, a lot of environmental issues um, are not like Everglades restoration, and what I mean by that is, you know, a, 
a lot of problems, one, it's, it's there's a problem and the effort is to try to figure out what the problem is or, or identify what a possible solution would be. With Everglades restoration, that's not the case. It's, we, we know what the issue is. Um, there's a solution has been identified. Comprehensive Everglades restoration plan has been in place since it was, it was voted into law in 2000. Um, but the other component to that is uh, there, there's special interests involved here. And what we're talking about is, is big sugar, the sugar industry. For decades, they've enjoyed kind of a, a priority uh, status as far as how our water is managed, um, how drainage is managed, how water supply is managed in their favor. Um, the system, the, the archaic system that, you know, 100 years ago, the Everglades was this natural system that flowed from Lake Okeechobee, from the Kissimmee River, mm-hmm. all the way down through, would overflow Lake Okeechobee, sup- feed the river of grass, and ultimately would flow all the way to the Florida Keys, um, Shark River Slough. And that system back almost 100 years ago, uh, you know, it was looked at as, as how, do we, how do we make something prosperous out of worthless swampland? And so set forth an effort to drain the Everglades. And both private and, and ultimately the government got involved, and they did that. And they dug a series of canals and sure. put up a series of, of levees and ultimately bled the water um, off that landscape and, and, and held and held the water back in Okeechobee. And so it disconnected that system from Lake Okeechobee to the rest of the system south. And so in doing so, it enabled for development and, and where a lot of us live. Um, and it also enabled for the creation of what is known today as the Everglades Agricultural Area, several hundred thousand acres area that used to be that start of the river of grass that today is primarily sugarcane. Yeah. And, um, that system worked perfectly for growing that cane in those areas. It, it provided, um, flood control when, when it was wet, you know, they got all the drainage they needed to keep those crops, um, dry and in ideal conditions. And it, and it provided a water supply and almost started treating Lake Okeechobee as a as a reservoir instead of a lake. And so um, they enjoyed that level of service for decades. The problem with that is, is it, it works great for sugar industry, but it doesn't work great for the communities on the coast. It doesn't work great for the health of Lake Okeechobee. It does not work great for the Everglades, Everglades National Park or Florida Bay. And so that's Everglades restoration will correct that. But but what you see is a real effort by the sugar industry over the last 20 years to kind of maintain the status quo. Sure. That the status quo works great for them. But um, that's what we've seen. I think that status quo, um, they were pretty successful in maintaining that. Um, but I think in recent years, uh, more people, the public, the fishing community, the tourism industry, um, the outdoors industry, more people who were aware of these issues have actually gotten involved and begun to engage on the issue. And so today we're seeing a, a huge shift in um, not only how our waters are managed or how those waters are managed, but also in prioritizing those projects like the EAA Reservoir. Yeah, it's and so backing up a little bit, when you were a fishing guide, um, 
how long were you guiding and how much change did you see personally and and how did you and Daniel kind of start getting involved? Yeah, so as a fishing guide, when we started captains, um, I, that was like my 17th, 18th, 17th year guiding, 18th year guiding, somewhere around there. Um, but even before I became a fishing guide, which was right around 2000, um, late 90s, before that, I, as an angler, I born and raised on Sanibel Island, as, as an angler, um, we saw the decline of our fishery. We saw the impacts of water quality, but literally my entire life growing up and even into my career uh, as a fishing guide kind of felt like that, would, that was just this really big problem that we couldn't do anything about it. And it was something you just kind of had to figure out how to deal with it. It was, it was a very naive perspective and way to look at it. Um, but it's the reality of kind of a lack of understanding or a lack of, of hope or opportunity to see how someone, an individual like myself could, could have an impact in, in such a, you know, big, big problem with such, you know, big political players, which such big, um, you know, challenges. It's, it's something that is, it, it requires uh, significant movement and funding both at the state level and the federal level. So it's just like real easy for a fishing guide to be like, look, I can't do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's anybody looks at a big thing like that and it's like a hornet's nest. You don't know where to start. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, I think that perspective just came from a lack of knowledge ab- about it. Or that that feeling that like there was no there, there was no way um, there was no way for me to be effective for my voice to be effective and so it was we took the approach of well we just we just figured out we have to run farther away from the mouth of the river when we're getting these discharges or we end up having to to fish other areas you know the areas that I fished as a kid that were extremely productive grass flats oyster bars like amazing areas right at the mouth of the Clusahatchee River, which is where like Matlashape Pass, Pine Island Sound, San Carlos Bay, and the, and the Clusahatchee River all converge in one area. Um, that was the most productive area. And I, I didn't have to go, but, you know, a mile or two from the boat ramp to have incredible fishing. Those grass flats and oyster bars today don't exist. They're dead. And so I, th- I think um, that mindset is really why we, we ultimately started Captains for Clean Water. It was if people like ourselves who are born and raised on those waters who identified an issue our entire lives but weren't in actively engaged in trying to fix it, then how could, how could we expect anybody else to be engaged in trying to fix it? And if nobody was, you know, if nobody that was affected was really a united push, there was no united push to fix it, then it likely wouldn't get fixed. And so... That was what we, we kind of saw as the missing link. You know, there had been science, really brilliant people that got together and identified this problem and identified a solution to fix it. Um, there had been the engineering, this, you know, this plan was in place, but what wasn't there was the public involvement and the stakeholder involvement to say, hey, this is an issue that affects us and, and it's not just an environmental issue. This is an environmental issue that, f- that affects the, the habitat and the fishery that I love and that I care about. 
but it affects our economy. It affects our property values. It affects our way of life. It affects human health when we have a harmful algae bloom. Sure. Um, and so if we could create um, a mechanism that is the organization Captains for Clean Water now, but if we could create a mechanism to, to educate people, teach them that there is this is a serious problem, there is a solution, and in order to see that solution advance, it takes public involvement and public pressure, and then be able to be that conduit for them to use their voice. We, we thought that if, if we could be that and create that conduit um, and people would get involved, that then we would see progress. And now seven years later, um, the proof of concept is, you know, yeah. EA Reservoir, it is working. It is. And you also did a really good job of sort of boiling it down to people, to what people can understand and will digest. I mean, some of those environmental papers and stuff, you know, as a writer, I've done some conservation stories and you're, you're wading through some heavy stuff that can be very confusing. And, you know, you guys have great materials on your website. I remember when I first heard about it and there was that video that Flip narrated and it was very simple. It's like, here's the problem. Here's the solution. These are the guys we're, that we're working with. And, and it, I just saw it. It was cool. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that just, uh, again, falling back to our careers as fishing guides. Um, when, you are, when you're looking at a grass flat, for example, and you're, and you're calculating, figuring out what the fish's movement might be across that flat to figure out where I need to be to get in front of, let's say, a school of redfish to where they're comfortable. If they have to rise up over a, a crown in the flat, rather than, you know, pushing on them hard when they're up on that shallow crown, but you know they'll fall off into a trough on the backside of it where they'll be more comfortable, you're, you're analyzing a lot of complex things that are happening between the actual lay of the land, the tidal movement, the wind, the sun, to put your angler in a best position to be successful. And, and that's kind of the approach we take with explaining Everglades restoration. It's, it's, a, it's a complex issue, but, you know, really when it boils down to it, it's not that complex. Like the, the intricacies of the science and all that are. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it's about we took a natural system, we diverted water east and west and stopped the water from flowing south. And so to fix it, you reverse that. You yeah. you take that water, you clean it, and you send as much water south as you can to reduce the discharges east and west. In do so, you're rehydrating the Everglades. And, and then all those other components and getting into the weeds of, of what does sending it south mean. And there's all these projects from the EAA Reservoir to a curtain wall to raising Tamiami Trail with bridges so water can flow under it. But it's really it's really in a nutshell, it is very, it's actually quite simple. If you, if you look at it holistically as one system, it's, it's reversing what man did. Man changed it. So man can change it back. Right. And, and once you change it back, I think mother nature will, you know, come back too relatively quickly. Absolutely. We've seen, um, numerous examples of how resilient, our ecosystems are and how resilient nature is if given the opportunity, if you're not, you know, beating it down every two or three years Mm -hmm. with these discharges or with 
a lack of water to the glades where you're getting these hypersaline conditions in Florida Bay, if you can put the ecosystem into a prolonged period of recovery, it will recover. And, and actually, the longer it recovers, the faster it recovers. And it's the same as, as the longer it declines, the faster it declines. It's kind of a, a graduating thing. Like the, the day these changes were made 100 years ago, the ecosystem didn't just collapse. It started a slow decline. And the longer it declined, the faster that decline happened. Um, it's the same thing for recovery. The day we complete Everglades restoration, it's it's not going to be a flip of a switch and we're going back to what it was. But it's but the longer it's in recovery, the faster it's going to recover. And, you know, that is, we've seen that. We've seen that. We've seen that if you look at the Kissimmee River, for example, back when they did all these changes, part of it was they straightened the Kissimmee River, which was a winding, meandering river, um, ultimately, from south of Orlando that wound its way through the Kissimmee River Valley all the way to Lake Okeechobee. They straightened it, and, and it became a canal. Um, just recently, they they uh, completed what is known as the Kissimmee River Restoration, and they basically went in and filled that canal and returned those oxbows and curvatures to that part of the river, restored the floodplain so during wet times it could flood up over and and literally within one wet season, all the migratory birds came back. That's great. Um, same thing we have seen where the Everglades is starved of that fresh water that it needs. When we have seen significant amounts of fresh water reintroduced into that system, in this case from hurricanes, um, we've seen this huge spike in the productivity of juvenile fish, tarpon, snook, redfish, and... Uh, we've also seen a shift when the Everglades is hydrated in the nesting patterns of migratory birds and waterfowl. And so you see like as the glades was really dried out, these birds that would normally nest in the interior, would their, their nesting sites would move all the way out to the coast. And then when we've seen the Everglades get rehydrated um, from these storms, you see they 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 move back inland to their historic nesting it's areas. Like you were saying with your fishing, where you would just have to go further away. Exactly. I mean, they were doing the same thing. Exactly. But that's great to hear that it comes back quick. But And those, speaking of hurricanes, I mean, what you all just went through over there with Hurricane Ian was pretty devastating too. And once again, you know, you guys were on the ground and helping guides and everyone. And it was another really impressive thing to watch. Yeah, I I appreciate that. Um, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, our our town got devastated by one of the strongest storms to ever hit the United States, um, and it's it's affected a lot of people. I mean, Fort Myers Beach, where my mom grew up, looks like a nuclear bomb went off. You know, it had sixteen feet plus of water across that island. That's crazy. Um, Sanibel, same thing. Where I grew up, um, it just it likely is it they're forever changed um but it's it's something that through that um we have seen the strength of our community the strength of the outdoor industry um and especially you know partners like Costa sunglasses where we're here at this thing this week um the support that that kind of flowed into that town literally you know moments after the storm 
um, just goes to show that our our fishing community is one big community. And whether we're talking about you know catastrophes in Montana with the flooding or or um, fires or or in this case a hurricane in South Florida, um, they always this community always does band together to try to try to help each other. It's amazing, and it's something to be proud of. You know, we work in an industry that you meet really cool people, you forge awesome friendships, and yeah, everybody always is quick, whether it's even in the Bahamas or abroad or wherever. Um, it's really nice to see that side of it. It's unfortunate that it's usually some awful thing that brings it together, but in good times too. And it's, you know, you guys have a lot of partners who have jumped on to help you um, and the community as well. I mean, if just Joe Angler wants to get involved, I mean, become a member, wear the hat, put the sticker on your truck, I mean, and, and show up. I mean, is that the biggest thing? Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, a lot of time people feel like um, if there's this really large thing that like their one individual voice doesn't really make a difference. Like you, you see it with voting, for example, like the, the turnout when you look at voting in our country isn't really high. And it's because a lot of people just feel like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And my one vote won't make an it's impact. It's out of my control. It's out of my control. It's not, you know, my one vote won't matter, but you know, I've done a thing that demonstration before and, I, and I've seen these done before where if you've if you've ever been like in a like in a stadium, right? If you're in a stadium, football stadium, let's say, and one person in that stadium, everybody's silent, and one person in that stadium whispers something. You can't hear it. But if everyone in that stadium whispers the same thing at the same time, it's actually very loud. And that is exactly how, you know, our, our movement and grassroots movements um, and individual voices with a collective voice and a collective message, that, that's the power and that's how it works. And, um, and it is very effective. And, and we've, we've seen now that, that that is the case. And, um, you know, with, with things like Hurricane Ian, um, for us – you know, we got very involved there. We've been very involved in hurricanes that have hit, you know, the panhandle of Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Dorian, over in the Bahamas. Um, we don't get involved there because we're uh, an emergency relief organization. But what we, the, the reason and, and how we get involved in those relief efforts is because the fishing community is the core of our organization. And we feel that it is critically important that you support your core, you support your family. Um, without them, we are our our mission that is to advance Everglades restoration is not affected effective. And so, um, when something affects our family, the people fighting for clean water, then we need to be there to support them. We need to get their back, and so. That's really why we get involved um, in these other issues that aren't necessarily within the lens of Everglades restoration. Well, and it's rewarding, too, because living in Florida, I mean, it's going to be you at some point. I mean, it's a roll of the dice where that thing's going to hit. And I don't think any of us are in the clear. And, you know, it feels good to help. It feels good to make a difference. 
um, yeah, sure, it's easy to just say, ah, you know, what can I do? But every little bit helps. And um, I'm sure on funding, too, I, I mean, there's got to be ways we can help with that um, and, and keep the ball rolling. It's got to be costly to to do these things you're talking about and to get these campaigns going. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it, it does feel good. And in, the, in reality, is you, you said, you know, being in this industry, you meet a lot of great people, you create a lot of good friendships. And, and that's really the biggest part of it is we're, we're very fortunate to, even before Captains for Clean Water, to have had a career in this industry. And, and we have friends all over the country, all over the world that we've met through, through the outdoors and through fishing. And, and so when something happens to them, it, it's ultimately we're going to help our friends yeah. and we're going to help our friends' communities. Um, and, and now, you know, unfortunately now, now we're, we are kind of on the receiving end of that where our friends were coming to help us mm-hmm. after hurricane Ian. Um, but it's, you know, I think, I think that, um, it really shows that, that these are big monumental hurdles that we have to come over, whether you're talking about recovering from a devastating storm or whether you are talking about, um, you know, being successful in the largest restoration project ever to be undertaken in the world that is also politically challenging. Yeah. Um, it's all, all of those things are going to take a united effort to be successful. And, um, and, and that's, we realize that. And, and we, you know, we, we know that if we are going to be successful in recovering from Hurricane Ian, or if we are going to be successful in, you know, changing the status quo and how of how water is managed in Florida and restoring the Everglades, that it's going to take everybody um, pushing in the same direction to see that success. It's it's a really smart approach, and you know we've always said right, fishermen are sort of the canary in the coal mine on a lot of these things because you we're out there a lot and we see the changes and we can report on it and you know it's it's things like a fish kill or something like that gets a lot of attention you know it's super unfortunate and it's a horrible thing to see but you know you guys are showing proof that like you're raising awareness and and providing solutions which is the key not just spouting off, <laughs> yeah. even though I'm sure there's been a few times you wanted to, to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, your, your natural instinct when you see, you know, a place you love um, being damaged is to be ticked off and to be mad. Um, and you can, you can complain or, or bring light to a problem and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to see um, change, you have to not only be able to bring light and shine a light on a problem, but you have to be able to shine a light on a solution um, so that when you can create enough public pressure and enough noise about something, mm-hmm. that when you finally get that attention of whoever it is that, that needs to make the decisions to advance forward, whether it's the Army Corps of Engineers, the Water Management District, legislature, whoever it is, um, when they say, okay, this is clearly important to our communities, this is what you're asking for. Now here's the ask. And, and, and you, so you, it's, it's very important to not just, um, you know, bring awareness to a problem, but to be able to advocate for a solution. Yeah. And, and it is, it's look, it's, this is a David versus Goliath 
thing. You yeah, know, it's going to take some time. It takes a long time. It took us, you know, 80-plus years to get into this position. Um, Everglades Restoration, you know, just that reservoir, for example, that just broke ground, that's been years in the planning process. And and it's going to be years before you see um, that complete. I mean, it's, it's larger than Manhattan, uh, footprint-wise. Wow. And so um, it's a massive, massive thing to build a reservoir that is that that big you know, we likely won't see that thing completed until around 2030 if we if it receives consistent funding yeah. to fund it all the way through and, and, and keep it going as, as quickly as possible. And so, you know, when it comes to this movement um, and, and our organization and all the other incredible organizations that also fight for this, um, there's, there's a, a lot of, of really great organizations that, you know, we're not the only one, but that whole United effort, it does, it, it requires support. It requires people being involved. It requires, you know, financial support. It re- we have to scale and continue to grow the army of voices that are engaged on this because what happens is it's real easy, like you said, it's really easy to get, attention um, on a problem when you're in a crisis. And that might be a water crisis, like what we saw in 2016, what we saw in 2018. Um, those, those times, and we're seeing, a, we're seeing a, a pretty serious red tide bloom kicking off now as a result of Hurricane Ian on the West Coast. Um, in those times of crisis, when the problem is, is very in your face, you get a huge spike of engagement. But where captains comes in and where education comes in is to be able to keep those people engaged in between those crises and keep them engaged in that effort when we're not in a crisis. And so mm-hmm. they don't get complacent and um, they also don't get issue fatigue when you're talking about advocating for something that's going to span decades. Um, that's, that's the real trick. And so as we are successful in, in growing that voice and growing that movement, there's, there's a, a counter effort um, by the sugar industry to also put more resource in to keep it the way it is. And, and, and it's, it operates differently. You know, they, the way they influence the outcome of water management is through lobbyists and political contributions and things like that. But the way that we counter that is not to go dollar for dollar with, you know, this, this huge industry. The way we counter that is to just continue to educate more people and get them to use their voice. And, and that takes time. It takes resource. You know, when, when we started the organization, we we're a couple of fishing guides that, you know, knew how to utilize social media and video to tell stories. Um, today we have an incredible team um, and staff members that are able to put out way more content than we ever could much higher quality content than we ever could. And they're, they're, that team that we've been able to build because of the support of the outdoor industry and the outdoor community, that team is, is what is making Captains for Clean Water extremely effective and, and what's ultimately bringing more people into this fight. It's been really, really cool to see. And, you know, as always, however, Angler's Journal or, you know, as a writer, we can help. We're, we're on board. And, you know, to see, you look at the numbers of how many people boat and fish in Florida. It's, it's what millions and millions and millions, multi-billion dollar industry. There's 
approaching 60 million anglers in the United States. They all want to come here. <laughs> they want to come here and do what we did today. So it is important to everyone, like you said. And and it is easy to become a member. And, and it's cool to feel like you're a part of something. You're part of the club. Yeah. And, you know, look, I think it's it's important that we are seeing success because it's it's pretty demoralizing if people take, you know, their time out of their day um, to, to try and be involved in something they don't see an effect from that effort. Um, but seeing that we are making a difference and we are seeing numerous wins now, that that's what inspires people to, to keep, keep going and to, and to bring others in. Yeah. Um, that's really, really important. And, and, you know, I, th I think the other part of it is that people, um, it's, it's human nature to, uh, I think root for the underdog and, and also it's human nature to want to be part of that, that winning team. And I, and I think um, this movement is both of those. It's, yeah. it's, we've been the underdog and, and as of late, we are, we're, we're seeing significant wins in areas that we've been told were impossible. And, and I think that it's incredible. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fun and inspiring time to be um, in, in the fight for, our waters. And, you know, like you said, uh, people come to Florida for our water. I mean, Without a doubt. we are surrounded by water. And, and so, um, if you're an angler, uh, chances are, uh, no matter where you live in the world, chances are the Everglades, um, is somewhere that you love to go fish or it is on your bucket list of where you want to go fish. Yeah. Um, the Everglades and Everglades restoration not only affects the fisheries, but, you know, you mentioned the economy, $120 billion a year tourism industry in Florida and growing. Wow. Um, you know, you, you talk about uh, the way of life or quality of life. Like people come here for our beaches, for our waters. If we have dead fish, toxic, toxic algae blooms. Yeah. Um, that's no good. That's, that's not why they're here. And, and, a real big piece of Everglades restoration is is quite literally the life-sustaining part. It's the drinking water. You know, the Biscayne Aquifer is is where over 9 million Floridians get their drinking water. That aquifer is recharged by water flowing across the Everglades and leaching down through into the aquifer and recharging the aquifer. So without clean water flowing south through the Everglades – the drinking water supply for 9 million Americans is at stake. Yikes. That's scary. That's scary. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking this time and, and thank you for doing what you do and, and for organizing and, and getting some stuff done and fighting the fight. Um, for all of our listeners, run over to captainsforcleanwater.org, get on board and, you know, listen in and join the fight. Thank you, Charlie. I, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, to everybody, it's easy to get involved. It starts with just visiting the website and becoming educated. You know, we're not not there to, to ask you for money. We're not there to, you know, to, to ask you to take an action on something that you don't understand. We're there to provide the information uh, needed for you to understand why you should be involved. Yes, and get down here and check out the Everglades. It's still beautiful. It is. It's definitely worth saving. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Charlie.